Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone and welcome to another episode of the IFG News Roundup. I am your host, Khidr Muhammad, and this to my right, I had to make sure it was my right, but I was using my left hand, is Ibrahim Khan, the co-founder, as you probably know. And I mean, the way you said this was like, this, <laughs> this. thing. This, this guy over here who's just intruded. <laughs> <laughs> but it could be looked at in a positive way. I was like, this. <laughs> you didn't do that. You, you said this. <laughs> True. Take it how you want. It's, it's interpretive. And then we've also got our head of partnerships returning for another episode, Annika Shah. Right. We've got an exciting set of stories for you. Um, and let's kick off with a viral video. So recently in India, a hijabi woman was being booed and heckled by a group of Hindutva thugs who are trying to get the hijab banned in their province. That kind of triggered a question for me about the rise of far right across the world. We're kind of seeing trends everywhere from America, Hungary, France is a great example of rise of far right right in our back door. We are seeing similar sentiments in the UK and in other places. And it's just, it's starting to become quite worrying. What do you think, Ibrahim? I mean, even you've become a skinhead. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'll be banning the hijab soon. <laughs> Astaghfirullah. Um, what do I think about, about what? The, the far right? The rise of the far right. It's not good, obviously. I think it's... I'm surprised. There's, a, there's an interesting trend bubbling, I think, in the Muslim community around how the locations, the geographies where we live as minorities are perhaps not the ideal places where we see the future of us and our families. And I think there's an element of racism and this far right stuff going on. But then there's also an element of moral values and ethics that and perhaps misaligning. And it could be around like, you know, modesty and LGBTQ related stuff. It could be about this hijab stuff. There's a whole range of things that it's not, you know, because I think these locations, perhaps like, let's say the West has become a lot more muscular about a certain set of values or ethics that are, I think different to, let's say, the, the average Muslims. And so the point I'm making is that I, I feel like we're on the cusp over the next few decades seeing a lot of relocations in the opposite direction, perhaps to Muslim-majority countries and the like. And then I think over the next 30 years, there might even be a link to the end of the nation-state. But, well, I'll stop there. That's very interesting. I can really see your uh, politics and philosophy background coming into play here. Annika, as a Muslim woman, have you ever felt that a country like the UK or maybe other European countries that you might have visited, um, have you ever felt like you don't belong and would consider moving to a Muslim majority country if not for the sake of your daughter? Oh, you just chuck chuck yeah, your daughter in there. Put, <laughs> put some emotion into it. <laughs> so if you'd asked me this question a year ago, I would say that, alhamdulillah, I've never experienced any adversity because of wearing the hijab. And I think that's because we live in London, very multicultural. There's so many cultures and everyone's accepting of everyone's beliefs, values, even if they're not the same. However, over the past... So I've worn the hijab for 10 years. And so, you know, alhamdulillah, it's it's been... Different ones though, right? Different one, <laughs> maybe similar to your purple jumper. I wear the same. Wait. I wear the same hijab. 
Yeah, no, over the last few months, I have felt some more animosity in certain interactions where I don't understand where that's come from. So like, examples are like being on the train and just having like rude comments. But that's something that I think is tolerable, like it's okay. Again, it's not anything major. It's just me really looking into something, perhaps being sensitive about a comment or not, and thinking, okay, is this attributed to because the fact that I'm a visible Muslim, or is this on other factors? It's hard to say and hard to pinpoint like where negative sentiment comes from. I do sometimes think, like on what Ibrahim said about the West being more muscular about their values and kind of enforcing certain values on. People, if not us as adults, they're being enforced now on children, as we can see with like the whole SRE curriculum and stuff. And I've got young boys, and I remember going to their nursery, and they go to the local nursery, and we live in a relatively pretty conservative neighborhood. You know, it's mostly white British people there. It's somewhat diverse, but not that much. And I remember seeing a big pride poster, rainbow that was made with the handprints of the kids that go to the school. And right next to that, there was an Eid Mubarak banner. So I was just seeing those two next to each other, and I was like, a bit like, okay, did my kids have a hand in making this poster? And then obviously the Eid Mubarak thing, I'm like, okay, yeah, great,、uh, Muslim messages getting out there. But at the same time, you're seeing those two together, and it's like quite conflicting for a child to view that. So it makes me think, like, okay, are they going to teach my children the wrong kind of values? And Do I see Islam persisting in my progeny for the next, like, say, four generations? Will my kid, like great grandkids, still be Muslim? I think it's a really, really good point, and something I haven't actually thought about for my daughter, who's one years old. But I also think it's hard to escape it. So, for example, this viral video that you spoke about—yes, it happened in India, but it has an impact on anyone that's watched it. So I've watched it, and I was like, okay, I can't imagine how that. Woman was feeling because I don't think I would have that courage to stand up. Like I mentioned, there's a comment on the train, and I'm I'm like still I'm talking about it. But to have that kind of backlash, whether you're in the UK or if you were in India or in the Muslim majority country, you still feel the effects of the far right or you know discrimination. Fair. What do you think, Ibrahim? Have what have you thought about you know hijrah for your kids, for example? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's inevitable. Yeah. I think we're heading. I mean, Boris Johnson. He's going to be coming up very shortly. Is from a Muslim family, isn't he? That's true. Can you can you imagine having drinking parties in Ten Downing Street, and he's from a Muslim family? Great grandfather was a Hafiz. There we go. There we go. So you know the、uh, things can escalate very rapidly if you、uh, you know you lose control. I think it's a legitimate fear, and I think a lot of Muslims. I personally know quite a few Muslims who have like. Relocated to countries like Turkey, they've either got properties here in the UK that they've put up for rent, and now they've got passive income coming in, and they're just, you know, they've bought a nice property in Turkey, and I think they've gotten citizenship there, and now they're just living it up. I know other friends of mine who have actually, for these exact reasons, have moved to countries like Qatar, Egypt, Saudi, for example. Although modernization is happening everywhere, and I feel like that is also a conversation that needs to be had. But because the majority population is Muslim, the overall culture will still be linked yes, to Islam,、yeah. and it'll be hard to escape that. So, I feel like you know there is this trend going on, and these conversations are being brought into the open. But who knows? On the flip side, do you feel like I'm just advocating for London? But on the flip side, do you feel like 
if you persist in a in a community where it's not standard to be Muslim, and the example I'm, that comes to mind is like eating halal meat. I know a lot of people that have come from like Muslim majority countries like the Middle East, and when they come here, it's like eating halal isn't a thing because it's just so commonplace to be able to eat wherever you want. But when you you've grown up and you you know you're explicit that not everything is easy for you, and as a result, you end up being a little bit more what's the word conscious conscious of those values there's like two sides to the story uh, I, I get what you mean it's like if you put someone on the back foot on something they will always be kind of consciously aware like for example if you put a muslim kid in a non-muslim school he'll be consciously aware that he has to eat halal meat he has to pray he has to do x y and z whereas if you put a muslim kid in a muslim majority school but those values aren't effectively taught to them mm. you know they might not consciously do it they might just do it out of culture and when they're taken out of that culture they then will lose kind of consciousness of that which i think is fair i always think about and i'll kind of move on to the next story after this point i'm reminded about the partition between india and pakistan and i was watching this documentary about it and it amazed me at the fact that these people you know muslims have been in hind which is the region known as india pakistan bangladesh currently have been there since you know as early as like the first few generations of Islam since the Umayyad Empire, so more than a thousand years, I'd say. But when the push came to shove, the Muslims were effectively kicked out and brutally massacred. And I mean, it did happen both ways as well, so inevitably. But there was a lot, of, a lot more Muslim deaths disproportionately with people who were otherwise their neighbors for the longest time. And all of a sudden, people turned on them just like that. So I was like, it made me think to myself, well, the West is essentially a non-Muslim-like region, and you could very well kind of see things happen like this if, if we do descend, continue to descend into this trend of uh, fascism. Do you want to add something, Ibrahim? I mean, that's this is quite a Deep. somber tone to end. <laughs> you know, just look, check your neighbor's eyes next time, look, <laughs> look deep into them and just judge him or her. Moving on, Ibrahim, you mentioned our beloved or non-beloved Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. So what story have you got for us today? What story should we start with? The stories he's been telling everyone or the actual story about him? So Boris Johnson, for those of you who've been perhaps living under a rock, is the uh, Prime Minister of the UK. He's one of the biggest liars in the country that is well known, right? He, and he, There's Cavsy uh, nodding in the, and he, uh, in the background. He's been doing all sorts of shenanigans in 10 Downing Street, holding drinking parties and free, I mean, it is free mixing as well, I guess, but it's, <laughs> it's you know, mixing, getting, getting within two meters of each other during lockdown, uh, right? during lockdown when everyone else was being told to stay at home and everyone else was pretty much staying at home as well. And I think the worst of it is that he lies about it. Initially, he resisted, he resisted, he resisted until things came out. And then he just like, you know, he apologized. A very groveling apology, it has to be said, because he realized that really there was at this point no way back unless he made like a major apology. And he's still hanging on. Somehow, remarkably, he's still hanging on. I think he is basically a walking man, a walking dead man. And I think it will take a, probably either the elections in May, I think it is, to bring him down or something else, you know, dramatic to happen. Uh, but I just can't see 
a prime minister needs to be credible when he comes onto the tv next time and he says we're going to have a lockdown he has no credibility and if that's you then if you're not trustworthy you don't have credibility or respect you can't be a premier i mean to be fair i would argue that he didn't have much of that before being elected the prime minister so how he ended up in that seat is beyond me but i'd like to throw a counter argument out there i think we live in a time of great uncertainty we've got covid we're post brexit where you know none of the kind of great deals that we were being promised actually have come to fruition and have led to like incredibly complexities complex complexities in regards to our interactions with the eu and trade so for example there's a lot of a uh, hold up with lorry drivers in france which is affecting the supply chain here in the uk so prices are being hiked up and not to mention a whole host of other problems is it wise to now in the middle of all of this add an election and throw change the leader and it just complicates things it adds another layer of complexity I, that we I, necessarily don't need respectfully khizar i think that's a bad argument <laughs> uh, i think he's, he's a disgraceful man and he should be removed asap i think a better argument would have been that 10 downing street is a business and it's like a company or it's like a institution and people are working there and of all the people in like you know in the uk that are all locked down there are certain pockets that just needed to work like the nhs for example people weren't going around measuring how far apart doctors and nurses were and politicians i.e. the leaders arguably one could say that look they just need to work hard and they're working full time and in that context social distancing is not as pertinent and perhaps we are now looking back and judging them with like a different lens to what the reality of the situation was i think that would have been a good argument okay fair um, that is quite a good argument do you have a counter argument to I, that i think he, i think that he should have been still very cognizant of the fact that he's a leader and that what he does is then followed by other people and if he is internally you know having these parties that are completely unnecessary like i mean look, all of us had parties as well and Did we? not during lockdown but afterwards but you know that period where we were switching from lockdown to normal that period there was sensitivity around it and if someone was doing something dodgy and let's face it in the muslim community in the asian community there's all sorts of dodgy stuff going on as well every so often <laughs> people would judge that and they wouldn't be happy with it so you as the prime minister you should definitely have a sense that what is happening here is not right and yeah. so yeah i think he needs to go fair what do you think anika is uh, bojo in or out for you yeah i mean well before hearing that he was out to me <laughs> but after hearing this absolutely i mean yeah just to echo i think as a leader you lead by example and he hasn't been a very good example but just to give some pushback i don't think any of the leaders that the uk has had of recent times have been great examples of leaders like i get this idea of him being the leader and like the kind of figurehead for the government but essentially the government isn't this uh it's not a dictatorship in which his decisions kind of ultimately reign it's it's a whole collective of people that no, are him. making these policies yeah he has to sign it off but like it is like he, he's, you know, he's a moron he's a, he like if you look at mr speaker the john former mr speaker john burko he's seen 10 prime ministers and he said very clearly that out of all 10 of them this guy is by far like the biggest moron <laughs> and he's incompetent he's in unethical even tony blair right 
I think Tony Blair is a massive scumbag, but I don't think he's a moron. Can I respect him at the dispatch box? Can I respect him if he talks to a president of America? Yes, I think so. David Cameron, yeah, you can respect him, even though you might think he is still deeply, you know, deep down a scumbag. What's the difference between a scumbag and a moron? So the difference between a scumbag and a moron is that can he command your respect? So if someone can command your respect, they may well still be a scumbag. So let's say, for example, you have, I mean, Tony Blair is a good example, right? He went to war in Iraq, but is he someone that, you know, is classy? Is he someone who can conduct himself well? Is he someone who you think would go through an appropriate process, at least, to further his ends on a decision? I think so. Do I think Boris Johnson reads all the things that things that are given to him, actually is well informed about what he's up to? Is he hardworking? I don't think any of those things are true. I've never heard Ibrahim so passionately speak about a topic. Because I don't, I don't talk Johnson. about politics normally, that's why. <laughs> we, we, we're getting to see a glimpse of Ibrahim's <laughs> politic background. For those of you that don't know, he did PPE at Oxford University. So Same college as David Cameron. <laughs> some, some of the same tutors as well. Nice, nice. Right, and I think that was a wrap on that topic. I think I'm the only one that kind of, I didn't support Boris Johnson, but I kind of, <laughs> I kind of gave him a bit of a- Credibility. A, a shred of credibility. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't entirely- are you, are you, Is he in or out for you? Oh, he's definitely out. I hated the guy before he even joined. And I think most prime ministers that the UK has had from the Tory party are, uh, were terrible decision makers. And they essentially, they helped the rich and they didn't give a crap about the, uh, I don't know if crap's a bad us, word. That might be something too. Yeah, yeah, but the regular folk, like, you know, they've kind of thrown under the bus. So uh, I'm not really for the Tory party. Uh, I'm not particularly a fan of Labour either, but I did think Jeremy Corbyn was probably the only shred or only hope that this country had, but unfortunately that didn't go well. But yeah, the country is heading in the direction it's heading in. So we can only make the eye and hope for the best. Now, moving swiftly on, we've got a very interesting discussion now. Why don't you take us through it, Annika? Yeah, so this is essentially the topic of apprenticeships versus university. So is it more beneficial to do an apprenticeship or go down the you know standard route of university? So there's an article that came out that was discussing the matter. And um, yeah, I guess I'll throw it over to you guys to see what are your thoughts on Let's bring in children. Let's bring in, you know, your children. If they were, they came to you in the time to come, Dad, should we do an apprenticeship or university? What would be your advice? Before we dive into that, let's get it clear. Did you do an apprenticeship or did you go to university? I went to university. You do. You went to university. You went to university. I did an apprenticeship. Okay, so now now we know we're like we've got a mix here. I'll start off, and I have. I don't think controversial opinion on this. But I do have like a, a it's strong a controversial opinion. Opinion. I, mean, I mean, if you're saying I don't think I have a controversial, it's a strong, it's a controversial opinion. <laughs> I think I think university is overrated. And, and that's and controversial <laughs> opinion. <laughs> kind of. But here's what I think. Like nowadays, you can get a degree in things that you don't need a degree in to get to know the job. Like there's certain vocations where it's easier to learn on the job and you don't need to sit through lectures mm. after lectures. Learn it. For example, there's an actual degree in catering. And I feel like catering is quite obviously a profession that you would uh, practically apply. Even the businessy elements of it, you can kind of learn that. And I do feel like university is needed, but for vocational careers that 
you know, you can't learn just through practicality. For example, medicine, because you don't want to learn that on the go. <laughs> you don't want to be experimenting drug dosages on people while you don't know anything. You need to learn the theory beforehand before you start practicing. Similarly with like engineering, aerospace, uh, you know, chemical engineering, for example, pharmacology, a lot of these areas require like, you know, degrees, degrees are quite essential and with the humanities as well. But I think that now we've, we've gotten to a point where everywhere is just building universities for the sake of building universities and charging extortionate prices for those courses that you can very well learn on the grow, learn on the go. So I did an apprenticeship in, um, public relations. And, you know, it, it was great. And the article on the BBC that, that you're referring to, Annika, like, you know, the guy says that apprenticeships opened his eyes to the world a lot more than university would have. I do completely understand that because when I was working, you're getting an insight to the corporate life as well as gaining the experience that's so essential to taking on more work and being employable. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. It does depend on the what it is you want to be able to do. However, I think there's a lot more facets to the decision making other than course. So, like for example, like I do think there's a lot of value in apprenticeships, and I haven't done one to be able to speak to it. But I see the fact that working earlier and getting exposure into that industry, like it makes a lot of sense, and then you, you can probably rise through the ranks faster. As you, if you've started at the age of 16 as opposed to 21. However, although there's more value in maybe starting earlier, on the flip side, university, I agree, is not all where you do all of your learning, but the, the side aspects or the things that you get from university, I don't think you can get anywhere else. So like one thing that comes to mind, for example, is you met Mawson at university, right? If you hadn't had that experience, would you have, would you have founded IFG together? And it's not what you learn in your course, you know, doing PPE. It's the people you met, the experiences that you've had. And you may get similar experiences during an apprenticeship, but the, just that time you have to be able to grow. And I think for me personally, university was where, where I went from a kid to an adult. Those three years were invaluable, not in terms of what I learned. So I studied maths and I haven't used any of it, but the people, the relationships, how I grew as a person, I don't think I would have been able to do an apprenticeship. So coming back to my question, would I advise it for my children? It's kind of hard to say. Like the answer is I don't know, but I'm kind of leaning towards university. Fair, fair. What do you think, Ibrahim? I think you go to university for either the skill sets or the signal that it sends and i think that if you go to um the russell group universities it's a strong signal so even if you do like a really dodgy degree like i don't know you do uh, i don't know french like Mawson did uh, <laughs> but you do it at a good university then that still has a lot of signaling risk signaling power uh, if you do it at a not so good university then it's not really worth it um, and because especially because you're not going to get that much skills out of it. Now, if you're doing skills, then I think going to university makes sense still, because if you do maths at a not so good university, it's still ultimately going to be somewhat useful or engineering or computer science or something. But but yeah, overall, I do agree that it's horses for courses. Like sometimes apprenticeships just do make a lot of sense, especially for voc vocational things. But, but I think 
overall, if you have the grades and you can do it, then I think university overall means that you probably have better chances at life. And I know, of course, in your case, it was unique circumstances. You got into medicine, but you were overseas and you you were an overseas student, so you couldn't afford it. And then, you know, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. No, I I think that's fair. I do feel like there is this whole um, excess of You've now got universities popping up everywhere. And I, I do believe that universities are necessary, but I do think there is a, you know, you have to balance that, the usability and like uh, the need of that university with actually, basically you, it has to be a university that provides some sort of value. Like you said, if they're doing courses that ultimately probably don't add that much value, I'd, and then they're still charging the same extortionate amounts. The, like, you know, we look at the yeah, amount agreed. of students with student debt, they're coming out and they're paying this off over. I think here in the UK, it's not as bad, but in America, like it's atrocious. Um, and, you know, you're paying off that debt like well into your 40s. And uh, it's quite uh, puts people in a lot of difficult situations. But I agree with you. Ultimately, is depends what you want to go into and what you aim for. Well, that was a very exciting discussion. We touched some very controversial points with my two uh, guests. Inshallah, catch us in another fortnight's time for another episode of the News Roundup. Until then, Assalamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. Assalamu Alaikum. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.